Welcome to Daily Kosa's The Brief, our weekly show about politics. Here, we'll discuss the issues that are driving the news as we fight for a more progressive America. I am Marcos Molitsis, the founder of Daily Kos and your co-host, along with senior political writer Carrie Eleveld. If you want to join the conversation, we record the podcast live on YouTube and Facebook every Tuesday at 1.30 Pacific, 4.30 Eastern. Enjoy the show. Welcome, beautiful people. Ah, thank you for joining <laughs> us today on another rousing episode of The Brief. Ooh. And I'm your host. <laughs> right. We're already in the mood. We're ready for it. I'm, I'm your host. Carrie Elleveld and uh, Marcos is out today. So joining me today is one of my very favorite co-hosts. Yes, our own <laughs> sort of an inside joke there. Um, but, I mean, it's, it's true, but sort of an inside joke. But anyway, our own Daily Coast Communications Director, uh, Carolyn Fid- Fiddler. Sorry, um, I screwed up your last name, of course. <laughs> Carolyn Fiddler. I've been called worse. I've been called worse there, I swear. <laughs> Me too. And I've answered to worse, frankly. But uh, yeah. Anyway, Carolyn is a keen observer of state legislative politics. Uh, She's also a Virginia aficionado. And uh, she's just come off a candidate um, conducting candidate training in Pennsylvania. So we're going to ask about her, you know, her about that key state. In a few minutes, we're going to bring on a good buddy of mine, Joe Sudbay, a political consultant who works on prog- with progressive groups on issues like immigration, LGBTQ rights, and more. And we're going to talk about some of the missed messaging opportunities that Democrats can and should be taking advantage of leading up to the midterm. Because believe it or not, Carolyn, and this is a little known fact mm-hmm. among pundits in Washington and Washington insiders, yep. You're, you ready for it? I'm ready. I'm so ready. Not a single vote has been cast <gasps> in the midterm general election. <gasps> but haven't we already <laughs> lost? I, no, I, know. I know. Listen, hey, you guys out there, pick yourselves up off the floor. It turns oh. out that that we haven't lost the general election yet, even though everybody says we have. Breaking news right here on The Brief. So anyway, we're going to we're going to delay that conversation for a second. <laughs> we will come back to it because not because we want to we don't want to like, you know, we're not trying to like just pound on Democrats. I mean, but we do want to highlight some of these opportunities so people can walk away and use some of the stuff in their everyday lives because the heroes of 2018 and 2020 were voters, right? We're a coalition of white Black, Latino, and Asian American voters who came together to save the country from a slide toward fascism under Republican rule. And so we can do it again. And we want you to have, you know, what the knowledge of what we're seeing so that you can use it too in your everyday lives. Okay. So, all right. I'll get off my pedestal <laughs> and uh, get back to the get up there. All right. All right. Well, if I was looking good, hey, you know, (laughs) anyway, but first, yeah, Carolyn is fresh off of conducting candidate trainings in Pennsylvania, which everybody knows is coming up is going to be a key uh, midterm swing state um, in the you know in November. And there's a major governor's race there. There's a hugely consequential U.S. Senate race for an open seat. There's lots of lots of other state legislative races. And Carolyn was there. And uh, Carolyn, can you just give us sort of an overview of what you did 
And if you can give us a sense of what you feel like the environment was there, you know, issues that seem to be percolating, et cetera. I would absolutely love to. Uh, it was a wonderful way to spend my Saturday. It was a gorgeous day. A little bit of a drive up to Harrisburg, but um, I'm up from my, I'm in the DC area for those of you who don't know me, probably most of you. And I walked into this room full of people that They've all been rapid tested. It was a it was a nice reassuring scene, uh, but a room full of I don't know about forty ish candidates uh, who are running to flip seats or pick up open seats uh, in the Pennsylvania House of Representatives because this is the first cycle in at least twenty years where the maps for the state legislature are remotely competitive. Good so news. Yeah, these candidates Good have news. a lot on their plates. How many seats do, would have to, I mean, you know, w- it might not flip, right? But how many seats would it take to sort of flip the state legislature in, in a better situation for Democrats? Uh, well, there are 203 seats in the, in the state house, first of all, as a good sort of concept. <laughs> I thought you were going to say 203 seats. I was like, ooh, that's a tall order. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. No, sorry. That's, that's the entire legislature. Uh, and so these maps are new. Um fairly recently settled. So um, filing recently closed. So now we have candidates in all these districts. Uh, Democrats do have to pick up a decent number of seats and it might be a multi-cycle prospect, but you know, we said that about Virginia in 2017 too, and it's still technically a multi-cycle prospect, but it definitely changed the landscape dramatically to have Democrats within like one seat of the majority and working towards that in Pennsylvania will also uh be absolutely a worthwhile endeavor, even if they don't win the majority this time around, which there is a path. It is narrow, <laughs> but it does exist. So I walk in this room full of all these great candidates, different ages, different, all sorts of different demographic groups uh, represented, uh, people of color, white people, uh, very young people, folks. I wasn't sure. So sometimes I wasn't sure if they were like a staffer or they're actually a candidate running for office. Like, the energy in the room was just really, really great. Uh, everyone was excited to be there, even though it was a beautiful Saturday, and uh, learn about how to put together a skilled campaign, the kind of campaign that you need to run if you're going to flip a house or win an open seat in any legislature. The guy who runs the Pennsylvania House did come from Virginia. He has experience flipping legislatures. Uh, so he's up there, and I'm up there to help them learn how to not have social media and their campaign. <laughs> that is, I'm sorry, that's such a sad statement about where we are in elections. But anyway, yes. Uh, no, I was there to, to help them understand how it can also like work in the campaign and help them, you know, present themselves, their, themselves to voters as authentic, as real people that, that their voters can trust and, and cast their ballots for. So it wasn't just that, but there were several slides that was just like, the internet is forever. When in doubt, don't post, don't tweet, etc. Don't do, yeah. don't do this, <laughs> don't do this. <laughs> so yeah. anyway, things that would, you know, conceivably things that you're telling Democrats not to do are things that would win Republicans a lot of votes. But anyway, <laughs> so I mean, we did talk yeah. a lot about bad faith attacks and like, and how, you know, anything is going to get taken out of context, if it can be. So just something to be mindful of, but also you can't sit around and say nothing just because Republicans are in a, you know, run for the lowest bottom common lowest bottom denominator in any right. situation. So. So what do you, what are the, 
you know, did you get a sense, like, even if you just, sometimes you get a sense, like when I would go to places as a reporter on the ground, like just seeing headlines, you know, in newspapers when they existed, but like <laughs> just, you know, being around, you would get, a, you could get a sense sometimes of like what some of the issues were that, that seemed hot there. Are you, did you get a sense of some of those? Oh yeah, for sure. Environmental issues, fracking is a really contentious issue in Pennsylvania because fracking means jobs. Unions are, are stronger in Pennsylvania than they are in my home state, Virginia. And uh, there's a lot of conflict around fracking good, fracking bad, fracking acceptable in certain circumstances. Or am I going, you know, ham on like green things, fracking is the enemy. Like there, there are a lot of complicated issues in Pennsylvania. And just to clarify, not that I'm like, some sort of energy guru, but fracking is the process by which you can help you can extract natural gas right from the from the earth's surface, but you have to but it involves a lot of dicey sort of, you know, uh, technology problematic and and processes that can undermine local geological structures for sure. It's it's done poorly. So yeah, really complicated. Uh, Education is an issue. Republicans have been in charge in Pennsylvania, governorship notwithstanding, for a very long time, and so there are a, there's a lot of there are a lot of bad things that Democrats have to invest in time in rolling back when they do win the majority there. So, social issues, education is a big one. Obviously, roads, traffic. I mean, Pennsylvania is big, a lot of roads in it. People got to get places that need, that requires money to fix those roads, so people can get to the places without ruining their cars, stuff like that. Does does it help that? Um uh, that Democrats and President Biden, you know, ushered through a, a big uh, bill to to address infrastructure needs. Does that is that like a help to candidates or? Uh, it is, especially if Biden's approval numbers improve by the fall. Uh, you know, dep- the credit taking is a big deal and Democrats are notoriously bad at it. So I'm just going right. to say it. Uh, right. So there are things for which Democrats can claim credit in Virginia, sorry, in Pennsylvania through this bill. But in terms of like how much it's like, hey, Biden did this great thing for us. You know, that sort of like inserting state legislative campaigns into the national narrative on purpose may or may not happen. The landscape still taking shape. Um, Republicans are going to attach Democrats to Biden anyway. That's what Republicans do. They nationalize everything because they don't have anything local to run on. Nationally, they don't have much to run on either. I don't know if you noticed that, but like they, I mean, the House, I still think hasn't, the, the House GOP still hasn't, still hasn't released what I think they're calling the, their commitment to America, kind of a play on contract with America. Cause I'm just you know, like, Kevin, can we just let the contract thing be this one time thing a long time ago? And can we just like move on? Like, like not Kevin, you have an original idea for at least naming conventions. No, not not Kevin McCarthy. He hasn't had a fresh idea in years. I'm telling you, not a fresh idea. It's like maybe since birth, has, you know, that might have been his freshest idea. Was right there, the Getting first the, the first time he yelled coming out of the womb may have been his freshest idea. Sorry. Okay. No, it's his only. Wow. So, all right. Well, there you go. He did have a fresh idea once. Hmm? <laughs> so that's the glass half full view of that take on Kevin McCarthy. But and and, the, and Senate Republicans had planned, you know, under Mitch McConnell not to release anything until 
you know, the, the Senate campaign chief, Rick Scott, went rogue and came out with, hey, we're going to raise, you know, taxes for 50 percent of, you know, of Americans, most of them working Americans who can't afford to pay taxes. So like, you know, middle class working Americans, we're just going to raise your taxes. That's what Rick Scott said. Um, Mitch McConnell was not super happy about that. In any Ooh, case, no, no. we got some Republicans in disarray things happening. And I feel like that, that might deserve a little more coverage than it's getting. But <laughs> That's it might. It just might. Democrat. OK, this is maybe a good segue if you feel comfortable with it for bringing on Joe Sudbay, because we are going to because that is something that we could capitalize, that Democrats could capitalize on Republicans in disarray. There's Joe. And let me just uh, introduce him again. Joe is a political consultant who works uh, with progressive groups on issues like immigration, LGBTQ rights, and more. He's also a frequent host on Sirius XM Progress, where he started a segment called State of the States, where I think our own Carolyn Fiddler has weighed in a few times, if I remember correctly. A few times, (laughs) right? And Joe also happens to be my good buddy and constant partner in crime. We're always spitballing ideas over Gchat. And uh, so, you know, tweeting each other's stuff out, things like that. He's like comfort food to me. So I was like, <laughs> who, can talk, who, who can we bring on to talk about strategy? Because uh, he, he is also a very keen observer of strategy, where Democrats could make gains, you know, messaging, things like that. So Joe, welcome to the show. I tell you what, Start off, let's run over just a few headlines I jotted down while I was making the show notes up in the past week that seemed like, I don't know, they could be of interest to voters, you know, something you might want to touch on here or there if you were a Democrat running for office. So a federal judge concludes in a ruling that Trump likely, more likely than not, I think is what he said, committed a felony related to the January 6th insurrection. Okay, Trump publicly solicits dirt on President Biden from a U.S. adversary, global pariah and likely war criminal Vladimir Putin and Russian President Vladimir Putin. Trump's White House phone logs just happened to include a seven hour gap on January 6th. Hmm. Where did those where did that go? How did that happen? Yeah. And conservative activist who also seems to be a tad off, Ginny Thomas, wife of sitting Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas, was actively pushing Trump's White House to overturn the 2020 election results just after the election. So, I mean, Joe, you're constantly gauging these things. I know that there are some buckets we've talked about of things, you know, of issues that we would like to see Democrats hit a little bit more. What, 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 what's your take on on where we are with democratic messaging. Well, I feel like Republicans keep handing Democrats issues on silver platters. And Democrats aren't the best at capitalizing on them. And it's really frustrating. We also have a media and it goes to something Carolyn was saying earlier. Republicans are in extreme disarray. I mean, they're fighting amongst themselves all the time. Mitch McConnell's fighting with Rick Scott. Some of them hate Trump, but they're afraid to. Trump dumps candidates he doesn't support. A bunch of Republicans in, in Georgia are going to try and defeat Herschel Walker because 
he's kind of a, da- a damaged candidate, but so they're all fighting amongst themselves. But it's like there's almost like a rule in the media. You know, if <laughs> Democrats are holding a press conference and someone sneezes, the what, Capitol Hill Press Corps immediately scribes Democrats in disarray. It, it does feel like that's always like the narrative as opposed to Republicans clearly infighting, you know, just consistently over the last, I don't know, year. Yeah. Why do you think why do you think that is? Is it the alliteration that just makes it so enticing or what? I just think it's the way things are, Carolyn. You know how the DC media works, the conventional wisdom, the mindset. They're a bunch of lemmings and they don't think outside the box. And it's frustrating. It's something observed firsthand when she was at, you know, working in the White House. And, you know, a good example was last week when President Biden held a press conference. And he got like almost every single question was about his remark about Putin. You know, you get that level of access. Come up with an original question. There's a lot of news going There's on. There's other stuff going on, y'all. Right. Not, not, all not ask like, the same questions. And big, that's, right? and that, that, so that's a reality that we have to deal with. And, and a reality we have to deal with is another um, series of headlines on Friday was the massive increase in jobs that have occurred under the Biden administration. It gets very little attention. But you see, me, yeah. Go ahead. Sorry. Well, let me just. In fact, I just wrote about this today. So let me just run over Biden's job numbers because a, a, apparently, according to uh, a Navigator Research poll, which is a progressive polling consortium of firms, right? Thirty-seven percent of Americans actually don't know that we gained jobs over the last year. That we netted jobs, right? 47% of Republicans believe that we lost jobs over the last year. And if I remember correctly, 43% of independents also think that we lost jobs over the last year, which is just crazy because I just because because it's so far from the truth. So, I mean, not only did we add some 430,000 jobs in March it was the 11th consecutive month of job growth above 400,000. March's jobs gains marked the longest stretch of growth in records dating back to 1939. So nearly nearly a century of like historic job growth, right? The economy has recovered more than 90% of the $22 million, million jobs lost in the spring of 2020. It totally has surpassed initial expectations by economists and forecasters. Workers have also gained 5%. They've made wage gains of 5.6% over the past year. Those are wage gains, right? Um, Which is really strong. Unemployment rate sits at 3.6%. That's down from 6.4% when Biden took office. And President Biden's created an average of about 568,000 jobs per month during his first year in office. So, I mean, the bottom line is there. I know that's a lot of numbers. Is that, is that a lot? It seems like a lot of jobs. It seems like a lot of good news. Biden's killing it. He's yeah. like literally out of the water, like totally surpassing expectations. So anyway, I just, I, I wanted to take an opportunity to at least run over those while we're talking about it. No, those are worthwhile stats. I feel like we should all already know because everyone should be talking about them. Right, exactly. Uh, and- the White House should be talking about it more. 
Democrats on Capitol Hill should be talking about it more because it's real. And it was interesting on when some of these numbers came out, I saw several political reporters tweeting saying, wow, this is odd. People don't know about this. Well, maybe because you're not telling them. Some of our media observers like Eric Bollert and Dan Froome can have done a really good job of showing what the media is talking about that, that when they don't tell these stories. So it's incumbent upon Democrats to lean in on good news and to take credit for the good things they do. And they are doing good things. Is it everything we want? No. But is it markedly better than if Donald Trump had won? Oh, Absolutely. That vaccine that? rollout was amazing. You know, we more or less have COVID under control. Sure, not exactly mm -hmm. where we'd want to be. We'd have it more under control if we didn't have one news network that was telling its viewers not to worry about it. But that's an important move forward. We have, you know, Democrats trying really hard to pass good legislation. Last week alone, on Thursday, Democrats in the House passed a bill to cap insulin prices. That is a real issue for American people. Yeah. Now it's going to the Senate, and I did see that Susan Collins is one of the negotiators in the Senate, which dooms it <laughs> from the start, but that's Ooh. another story. Joe, um, Joe Sudbay is a Mainer, in case uh, people don't know. So he's he's spent a lot of time thinking about Susan Collins, and <laughs> he appreciates her presence in the Senate. Um, yes. But didn't didn't half the, didn't more than half of Republicans vote against that capping of insulin? I mean, 193, 193. I think if that's, that's like the right the entire number. caucus. Yeah. Yeah. And then on Friday, Democrats voted to legalize mar marijuana. Now, that's a piece of legislation uh, that has passed on the ballot in states like Arizona, Alaska, South Dakota, South Dakota. It was taken. Uh, it was overruled by the courts. But there are really great progressive policies that pass at the state level by referenda that Democrats on the Hill, that, that I was really happy to see them move on marijuana legalization. It's like, it's way past time. The Senate probably won't pass it. it we know the Senate's a problem. And we know that particularly there are two senators who are big problems. But even with them, we've been able to do this week. This week is historic. Katanji Brown Jackson will be confirmed so by the United States Supreme Court. Oh, my gosh. It's amazing. Yeah. yeah. It's amazing. And the Supreme Court's a big issue that we should be talking about. <laughs> Yesterday, Lindsey Graham said, you know, if we were in charge, Katanji Brown Jackson would never have gotten a hearing. Today, Mitch McConnell was asked by one of those star Capitol Hill reporters, you know, if you take back the Senate, will you give a hearing? And Mitch McConnell said, well, you know, we're not going to make any predictions. You don't have to make any predictions. We already saw what you did in 2016. Yeah. yeah. And this is yeah. a Supreme Court that over the next few weeks and months is going to take our rights away. They're going to take right. rights away. Yep. They're going to end abortion rights. They're going to end. They're going to make it much easier to carry guns around, which, you know, we keep hearing Republicans complaining about crime. How much of it is gun crime because of your Fealty to the NRA a lot. Right. But, there are but, issues but, Democrats but, need to lead into. More good guys with the guns. We'll stop the bad guys with the guns. Oh yeah, that's yeah, fine, yeah. right? I've heard I mean, that for years. I used to, I used to, I used to work with Jim Brady, right? Jim Brady, who was oh, wow. Ronald Reagan's press secretary, right? He was shot at the Hilton on 
right off Connecticut Avenue when the president was shot. Jim was shot in the head. I spent seven and a half years working with Jim. It's the greatest, one of the greatest honors of my life. I love the guy. And he used to say to people, people would say that to him, you know, you know, you need guns to protect yourself. He said, how do you say that to a shooting victim? What the hell? Sorry. Well, We'll say it to a shooting victim who was with the president under the protection of the United States Secret Service, arguably the best trained uh, law enforcement people in the country, right? Qualify as good guys with guns, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So anyways. um, What he used to say, so he used to say what? He used to say, when I was shot, I was surrounded by the United States Secret Service. They are literally the best trained law enforcement professionals in the world whose job is to make sure no one can get a shot off at the president. And it still happens. So you're telling me that someone without training is going to be a great marksman and protect themselves and their family in a dangerous situation. I don't buy it. And you know what? I have, I tend to agree with Jim Brady. Yeah. The goodest guys with guns couldn't stop it. Yeah. Pretty pretty hard to argue with that. Pretty hard to argue. So, you know, so Carolyn, you spent a lot of time obviously thinking about uh, Virginia politics and we, you know, after we've did some before Virginia votes pieces, you know, we went over that material here and then we did some takeaways. And I just wonder now that we've had a few months you know, intervening. And we're starting to get a little bit of a taste of what the midterms are going to be like and some of the top issues. Do you think some of the takeaways about those elections still hold? I mean, one of them was, oh, well, you know, Youngkin was able, uh, Glenn Youngkin, the Republican candidate, was able to sort of keep Trump at arm's length. And that is, you know, the gold standard for, uh, making yourself palatable to suburban districts and uh, keeping some of, you know, winning over some of the suburbs, winning them back after a lot of them fled Trump, uh, while also, you know, being able to claim Trump's, you know, most fervent base, right? That was one. And then, then, there, then another one was, it's all about this, you know, the election was all about critical race theory and blah, blah, blah. So I just, I, I, and, and, you know, whipping up, you know, people, suburban voters supposedly were really upset about critical race theory being taught in the schools, which frankly, I never bought. I just would like to hear what you, if you were to say, well, I think something still holds or none of it holds. I, I'd love to hear your takes. Uh, well, and it doesn't just have to be my, you know, back of napkin expertise here. There's been there's there's been actual research into like what happened in Virginia. Was it this anti quote CRT like scare nonsense? It was mostly just Republicans turning out more. <laughs> like it wasn't like, and it wasn't uh, it wasn't even like tepid Democrats being like, well, I don't like Republicans, but this this uh, this critical race theory thing scares me. It wasn't that. It was not that. There was like a silver wave, wasn't there? One of the biggest, yes. I, I think I read something where one of the biggest groups, I, and I, I don't have the percentages, but biggest increase in voters who hadn't voted in, in some previous elections mm-hmm. were, old, were much older. It was, it was, it was the olds. It was the olds. <laughs> which, which is a word I use to describe myself. But in this context, it's specifically people much older than I am who hadn't, you're right, hadn't voted in a while. And for some reason, well, 
not for some reason, uh, change is scary. Mm. And if you're used to the world being a certain way, you're going to be scared. And Republicans are great, great at scaring people and convincing people who are scared that the only one who could save them from the big bad X, whatever thing of the day they decide everyone needs to be scared of. Now it's transgender kids, apparently. The Republicans are great at motivating their voters to A, be scared by the thing that is not actually scary, and to B, turn out and vote as a way to protect themselves against the scary thing. So, uh, all that being said, Republicans are definitely going to use that at every level of the ballot this time around. They're going to paint their Democratic opponents as pedophiles trying to allow the gays to groom kids. And it's a slur I thought we left behind in the nineties. Like I'm old enough to remember when that went out of fashion the first time. Right. Well, I thought it was, it was Madison Cawthorn who tried to clean up that situation and let us know that the real, the real sex fiends and cocaine bumpers are Republicans on the Hill. I don't need Republicans Um, and sex fiends being connected in any way in my brain ever. Thank you. Jesus. (laughs) I know. You know, I just want to do bring up for context that what a totally fringe and irrelevant issue this transgender attack is by Republicans, right? It's been a long time coming. It's been well orchestrated. They planned this years ago. They started working away being the right right wingers. They started years ago. Why? Just after just after I do this, I want to ask Joe a follow-up question. I'm going to ask it before I talk because otherwise I'll forget it. <laughs> That's how the mind is these days. So anyway, it's just it's just like clockwork. Anyway, but the the question is have have Republicans ever really won on this issue? Okay? So just keep that in mind, all right? So let me tell you how irrelevant on the transgender issue, right? Let me tell how irrelevant and like fringe this issue is is that the governor of Utah, who's a Republican, recently vetoed the bill. Now, he was overridden by the GOP dominant state legislature, right? But he recently vetoed a bill that was a- attacking, you know, transgender uh, women playing sports, right, in high school. And he said he in his letter, he said there were like some 200,000 high school athletes in the state. Four of them were transgender and one of them was playing girls sports. So this is and that's part. And and then he, of course, went over the horrific stats about how much more likely transgender youth are to consider so how much more, you know, how, how much higher the suicidality, suicidality is among transgender youth? And he, he said, quote, I want them to live. Like the fact that we're trying to pass a bill that's going to affect one person and yet it's going to up the, you know, possibility that a, that a bunch of trans youth are going to take away, hey, I have no future and I might as well go ahead and take my own life. He just, you know, he couldn't. Of course, the GOP legislature just rushed to pass it anyways. But care. so it's a totally fringe issue. It affects very few people. And, you know, I, my I, I think I've heard that there's a lot of girls still playing sports across the United States, despite this big, scary issue of, you know, transgender involvement. So anyway, but the conventional wisdom is, is that this has legs and um, I, you know, and that supposedly Republicans can win 
um, you know, elections on this. And I just wonder, Joe, what you think about that. Have you ever seen anything like that? Well, first of all, the conventional wisdom, the way conventional wisdom gets formed in D.C., in the D.C. media echo chamber, Republicans say something's an issue, and then the media says, okay, well, that's an issue. And it's a winning issue because Republicans say it's a winning issue. Um, you know, I think it goes to kind of what you were saying earlier in the show. Republicans don't have an agenda. They don't have things they can run on. Look in Texas. The governor of Texas literally let his people freeze to death last winter. So what's his big issue this year? Sending his child protective services to the homes of families. Meanwhile, we find out that the actual facilities under his control, there was rampant sexual abuse, but couldn't be bothered dealing with real problems because you have to create problems. At my work, I work with a group called America's Voice. And actually, in 2017, 2018, we started monitoring Republican ads. And this is it's an just just to be clear, that's an immigration group. It's an immigration group. And we monitored them for um, anti-immigrant messaging. Uh, and it is amazing the filth that comes out of Republican ads. It's yeah. disgusting. And it's only gotten worse. We have a, um, a, a young man named Zachary Mueller who does it right now, who every day is coming up. And, and the attacks are um, always on immigrants and lies about immigrants. They've heavily weighed in on this replacement theory. The replacement theory is basically what those uh, white nationalists in Charlottesville were chanting, you will not replace us. So that's who Republicans uh, are echoing. They're doing this invasion rhetoric that Trump always used. Uh, In in El Paso in 2019, a young man with an assault weapon killed 23 people because he was trying to stop the Hispanic invasion that he'd been hearing about. That's, That's their messaging on immigration. They are brutal on transgender kids. I mean, can you think of a more vulnerable group of people than transgender kids? And if you've ever watched, and I'd encourage anyone, watch some of the testimony that some of these kids have given in state legislatures. It is heart-wrenching. And also watch their parents and talk about, watch the experience their parents went through realizing they had a kid who they thought was going to kill themselves until they started the therapies and their child blossomed. That's what you want. That's what you want parents to be doing. Republicans have decided that's an issue. Look in Florida. I mean, I think what's important, and Carolyn will know what I mean, because she and I have discussed state legislatures in great detail many times. State legislatures, Republicans use them for three things, I always say. They use them as ways to prevent people from participating in the electoral process through gerrymandering, voter ID, strict voter ID laws, basically voter suppression. They use them as pipelines for their version of talent. And like some of the worst people in Congress came up through state legislatures. Like Matt Gates. Yeah, Absolutely. And back in the day, it was Rick Santorum. Rick Santorum <laughs> and Marilyn Musgrave. I remember oh, <laughs> going back in time. <laughs> but like a lot of them. And the other thing they do is they do them, they use them as incubators for their batshit crazy ideas. Yep. That's what we're seeing in Florida. They work with groups like the Alliance Defending Freedom. And what's really scary right now, and it ties into the national story, is these state legislators see 
the United States Supreme Court giving them a green light to do the craziest stuff they want. And that look at the horrible uh, anti-abortion laws they've passed, these anti-trans laws, um, attacks on the uh, queer community at large, the voter suppression. They all think they can get away with it. It's all tied together. And, and I think progressives have finally started to clue in more than they used to on state legislatures. I think it's so important. And going back to Virginia, too, I mean, as tough as it was for to lose the governor's race, we lost the House of Delegates. It's a 52-48 margin. But if yeah. you want to know the importance of state legislatures and what it means to have a Democratic body, look at Virginia and look at what Louise Lucas, State okay. Senator Louise Lucas, and the Democratic caucus in the Senate stopped from happening in Virginia. Virginia would be Florida or Texas right now absent the Virginia, the Democratic-controlled state Senate. So those races are so important. And I think progressives and the National Democrats, I think, ignored them for too long at their peril, and we're paying a price right now. I, I, I hear you say ignore in the past tense. I'm not sure I agree with that. <laughs> well, I, I think, you know, I, I think, um, Carolyn, it's gotten somewhat better. I mean, I heard um, Jessica Post from the DLCC, Democratic Legislative Campaign Committee, on the down ballot a week Mm -hmm. or two ago, and they're finally getting more funding. Um, They are, but they're still not at parity with Republicans. Not at parity, no. But then there are also groups that have sprung up. I know Dan Squadron's got a group right now that had Mm -hmm. just got some money. So there are other outside super PACs, finally. Look, is it where it needs to be? No, but is it light years ahead of where it was in the oh, 80s yeah. and 90s and even even 2010? And I, I swear, okay, when I say this, it makes me sound like facetious, but I swear to God, I, I, I've focused on state legislatures the whole time I was in, been in D.C. It's why I started the show on Sirius XM Progress to lift up the work of state legislative candidates. I swear sometimes when you're talking about state legislatures with people in D.C., they're like, they have legislatures in the states? What do they do? Isn't that cute? <laughs> yeah. Well, I have I have a real real story to tell you and a real sad one. So once upon a time, I actually used to work at DLCC there in 2010. And What's DLCC I, again? That's uh, Democratic Democratic Legislative Campaign Committee. Yeah. Which no reporters seem to know what that acronym stood for. Right. But not a one. Right, it including me. I couldn't remember. Brain break. Well. When people call when reporters call me asking for information about something, but don't know the name of the organization I'm working for. It's absolutely wild. It's just, it's, it's a level wow. of cognitive dissonance. I wasn't quite ready to deal with. Um, by the time I left DLCC, everyone knew what it stood for, but it was a lot of work. Um, but, and that was, that was not that long ago. Um, but yeah, no, the DLCC, I don't think didn't exist until I want to say the nineties and its counterpart committee didn't exist until even later. Republican State, uh, sorry, Republican State Leadership Committee, which is an umbrella group for RLCC, Secretaries of State, Lieutenant Governors, Secretaries of Agriculture. And now they also have a group underneath that umbrella that elects Republican and conservative judges on the state level, which is a whole other conversation, maybe a whole other show in the future. I can go on about that for way too long. (laughs) 
Yeah. Wait. So, so what? So, what was the story? Did I miss it, or was it just that people used to call you? What was the story? The sad story you were going to tell us about DLCC? Do you well, there is a reporter. I don't want to blow up because okay. he's a he's a good guy. But a reporter from a prominent publication called me once because I, I was back way back in the day, early 2011. Wisconsin Democrats had walked out of the Senate to block uh, Act 10 and. Uh, DLCC was running some ads up there in support of their Senate Democrats because we already, we at the time already knew we were going to start doing some recalls in those Senate races and a report. And I give the exclusive to another reporter. So this reporter calls me up, starts screaming at me. is so mad. I gave the exclusive on that ad to another reporter because he'd been all over this from the beginning. And I was like, Hey, I know you've been doing great coverage, you know, but you hadn't reached out to me before next time that exclusive will go to you. He's like, great. So, uh, so what's the LCC stand for again? <laughs> After he screamed at me. It was amazing. No. <laughs> it's a rough go. You know, those reporters, <laughs> they work hard. They work hard. They just don't always know who they're dialing. You know, what, <laughs> I mean, there's only so much you can, there's only so much, you so many facts you can check up on before you start, you know, pounding the phone. So, and that was the first time anyone had cared about state legislatures, maybe in a while, maybe ever. I don't know. Right. So let's talk. I'm just going to see if this goes anywhere. I, I, I've been thinking a little bit about messaging. So messaging that Democrats should be using some one of the recent. So there and, and looking at I've been listening to some podcasts about it um, and also, you know, writing about some of these messaging memos that are coming out from people who are doing some pretty interesting research. Uh, one of the thing, one of the takeaways that I had, because I often think about when I get a chance to talk to average people about, you know, like voting, like people in my kid's school or whatever about, you know, it inevitably comes up because I say I work for a lefty. They say, what do you do? And I say, I work for a lefty political uh, blog and, you know, and then politics comes up and then you're talking to them and, you know, the very few of them are (laughs) as lefty as I am. But anyway, so, you know, how can you not turn them off, right? How can you, how can you just draw them out? You can ask them, you know, what kind of questions, things like that. So I had this revelation again, I don't know where we're, where this is going in our conversation, but I'm just going to throw it out there (laughs) where I was listening to this podcast about messaging. And, and this one group uh, had done a lot of work on identifying what messages, what kind of messages sort of worked with, you know, at different kinds of voters. And one of the things they said was, whatever you do, when you start talking about, and you, you're trying to, you know, draw people in and get them motivated to like, get involved in the democratic process and whatever, don't tell them what keeps you up at night. So, so when they said, well, when they say, yeah, politics really isn't for me, I'm not that involved. Don't be like, you do realize that our democracy is collapsing, don't you? You know, which, which frankly, I've come damn close to doing sometimes like, oh, what worries me is that we're becoming kind of become a, a fascist, you know, Republican controlled society. <laughs> So apparently I shouldn't have been doing that. So I'm, I'm going to reorient a little bit. Um, but, you know, I just thought it was, you know, thinking about how you can talk to people about these issues was kind of interesting. And one of the things that also came up, which I've seen in other messaging memos, 
is is that for a lot of people that just shuts them down, right? Mm-hmm. That that hearing things are so bad that they're about to collapse or hearing your worst fear just kind of shuts them down. It's too overwhelming. So instead of making them feel like they want to, you know, all the people who are overwhelmed by what's happening and and think, "Oh my god, this is like a terrible situation." They're watching this podcast. They are reading, you know, or listening to this right. Here we are. They are <laughs> watching our YouTube presentation. They're reading, you know, listening the podcast they're reading the newspapers they're you know probably giving money they're you know trying to talk to their friends whatever they're, they're, they're already engaged it. yeah they're already engaged they're or, they're organizing and whatever but how do you talk to someone who isn't that involved and apparently that's not the thing you say but the the thing that does sort of work for a lot of voters is to make them feel empowered make them feel like they can be like part of something that's bigger than themselves. And they have the power to vote. They have the power to get involved. They have the power to enact, you know, the change that they want to see through casting their vote, knocking on doors to help other people cast their vote, writing them, calling them, whatever they want to do, giving money, whatever it is, you know, whatever their gig is. So anyway, I just, I throw that out there and wonder if you guys can, can add to what people might be able to do to sort of engage other folks who, who aren't as like consumed with this as we are. You're talking about actual normal human beings and don't, you know, aren't, aren't, I mean, when you pay attention to the news, like we do, you, you can't help but be aware that democracy is collapsing and everything is really terrible, but a normal human doesn't know that because they don't have the time to consume all that. And that is a, challenging way to live one's life. So that is a, that is a, I think a really important point to maybe not lead every conversation with that, even though it is tempting. I find it tempting to lead <laughs> conversations with that person. So I'm really glad that we're talking about this. Right. Yeah. yeah. I, I, it's hard not to, I mean, because it's real, right. It's a real problem. We actually had an attempt to overturn our election on January 6th. And I think everybody, even if you don't pay attention, you know, that happened and in the next few weeks, we're going to see hopefully televised hearings in prime time discussing this and explaining to the American people from the January 6th commission what happened. So that's out there. I think a way to do it, and there's a group called Way to Win that I think does really important research. And they, one of the things they, uh, Jennifer Ancona, um, she's talked about, I had her on SiriusXM when I was hosting once. Well, I've had her a couple of times because I'm just, it's one of the perks of doing that show. It's kind of like the same thing here. You get to talk to people <laughs> who are interesting, right? And I'm like, I'm such a dork. I love it. And she's terrific. And every story needs a hero and a villain is one of, one of the things they've been finding recently. And the heroes in this story are the American people. I mean, the heroes are the people who voted for Joe Biden. We keep hearing about the 74 million who voted for Trump. 81 million, the biggest turnout ever for a presidential election, elected Joe Biden. Thank you to every single one of those people. And you have to show up again because you know what? The work you did then saved us from so much. But only for a hot second. That's the thing. Well, it did. It's a a marathon, not a sprint, right? It's it's a a marathon. marathon. And yeah. I've done nine. I've done nine marathons. Yeah, so you, I understand you, the marathon. marathon. <laughs> you have to start slow and keep going. And it's painful. And there are times you, it's going to hurt. But you know that it, it's important to keep going. And uh, so I think, you know, 
it, it's important to talk about the fact that you know we have had some great some great accomplishments in the Biden administration. We talked about some of them earlier. We know. Look, there's there are crises facing this world right now. There's this horrific war in the Ukraine. Can you imagine Donald Trump in charge right now? It'd be horrible. He's he still loves Vladimir Putin. Look, and you can't pretend the climate is not in danger. And that's a really important issue for young people. And you can't, we can't pretend that our rights aren't going to be taken away by the Supreme Court. That's going to happen. But the way to fix it and the way to change it is for people to participate in the process. And it's not that much to ask people to vote. Like, it, 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 it's a privilege. It's a privilege. And maybe do a little bit more. If you've got some extra money, you know, I encourage people to donate to state legislative candidates because they're on the front lines. They're actually the people who know their neighborhoods who are doing get out the vote, right? They have the really keen sense of what needs to be done. And sometimes those people won't win. I was on a, um, a presentation last week for rural PAC, rural voter PAC, and um, Jennifer Kitchen from Virginia was on. It, she ran. She didn't win, but she increased turnout. And guess what? That's that's really important. We need to increase turnout and close margins in some of those harder areas. We need to increase turnout where our vote is stronger. So I just kind of feel like it's easy to be demoralized, but what's on the ballot is too important. And I know we always say these, this election is the most important. We actually see we have another, the, the parties are not equal. The media still treats them like they're equal. We have one party that it was willing to undermine our democracy and still is. Right. It's frightening. You see in Pennsylvania, there are state legislative candidates, people running for governor who oh. say the election was stolen. It wasn't stolen. Yeah. There are people who make so, laws who are, who are at January yes. 6th. Yes. Not yes. just in Pennsylvania, yes. but yes. all across the country. It's so it ain't right. You know, I've, so I've can, this is something that I've heard, you know, sort of acquaintances tell me is, oh, because it's a popular thing to say. And like the media has helped make it popular. But, oh, you know, both sides do it. And mm. I heard that once. And oh, um, I, was like, I know I was like so flabbergasted that I didn't, you know, I mean, you have to figure out your audience and what they can handle and whatever. And, and I, I wish in that moment, I mean, I, I think I didn't shut that person down because I didn't have a, what are you talking about? You know, I mean, I didn't like jump on them, right? But I, but I wish I had said something that everybody, that is something that I think most people can agree with, which is, yeah, I mean, that's something that's popular to say, but only one, only one party attacked the Capitol on January 6th. You know, supporters of only one party did that. So, you know, like that. It's just a fact. They can't say, yeah. oh, no, Democrats did that. No, Democrats didn't. <laughs> no. They, didn't they didn't attempt to have a coup. Like, there was no, there's been no Democratic coup. I mean, you know, they can say, oh, where there, there were BLM protesters across the nation. Yeah, there were a lot of protesters across the nation in the wake of George Floyd being murdered on, you know, like, like on tele- television, basically, in front of everybody, right? So, but... They didn't they were protesting for rights. They didn't they didn't try to steal an election. They didn't attack the U.S. seat of government. So that was one thing. One other thing you mentioned, Joe, was, you know, people being demoralized. And I listen to Pod Save America uh, oftentimes. And these are, you know, three three guys, for those who don't listen to it, who 
were Obama staffers in the White House. And, but uh, one of the things that John Lovett, who was a, um, a speechwriter for Obama and, and initially a speechwriter for Hillary Clinton, I think during the 26 campaign, 2016 campaign. Um, but anyway, he was saying that one time he had this experience where he had written a speech for Hillary Clinton and he passed it by Bill Clinton or someone did. And then he got feedback on it. And it was the last part was all about how the nation needed to address environmental cl- like climate change and environmental issues. And he had a bunch of facts in there, a bunch of like eye catching facts. And then what what Bill Clinton did was cross it all out and say, and write something along the lines of, and I'm, this is very loose, right? This is not what he wrote, but it's like very loosely, like the project of saving the climate is going to be, you know, is going to be such an engaging, interesting, and, you know, fun project for, you know, da, 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 da. I mean, it was bit like really uplifting. I mean, it's sure is much more eloquent than this, but really uplifting, like not like, it's doomsday. Right. You know, the climate is going to come and get us. You know, it wasn't like that. It was like, Listen, we, you know, this is a project that we're going to take on as a country and we're going to win this. We can win this and we're going to do it together and make few people feel empowered. And, you know, and and like this can be a a sort of joyous project of saving this for future generations. And that's the way I feel. I mean, I feel that way about climate change. I feel that way in this moment about democracy. We are all worried about our democracy right now. You know, we, especially people watching this, listening to this podcast are worried about our democracy right now. And I feel like, you know, as I have the privilege of being white, I had the privilege of growing up in Michigan in a middle class American household. Um, I have a good education. I went to good schools. Um, I'm a proponent of public schools, by the way. Every school I went to was a public school, but it was still they were still good schools. University of Michigan, you know, uh, I went to Cal for grad school. So I, I have, you know, there's a lot of privilege. And we, as, as the... Um, you know, it's sort of like the the Gen Xer, the the less than zero generation who seemed kind of directionless and aimless because we didn't have to deal with something like we kind of came of age a little bit past some of the worst of the of the Viet of you know of Vietnam, and we we didn't send people off to war war, war in World War Two. You know what? This is our chance. This is our chance to make a difference that we haven't had a chance to make a difference for future generations yet. This is our chance to do it. Now I'm getting, I'm sappy. I'm getting like tears. I love it. <laughs> Someone's, but like, we can do something real here. We can do something fundamental. We can do something important for future generations. Oh my God, I'm a sap. Now you're making um, me hopeful, which is really but, hard to no. do, Carrie. Right. <laughs> so like, this is a, like, this is a piece, you know, it feels like a slog, but if you invest in it, if you say, look, this is really important that we win this fight. And God, if you want to see people who are fighting the fight, look over at Ukraine, look at what those, you know, what the folks there are enduring in order to fight for freedom, in order to fight against what a, you know, what a horror show, um, you know, President Vladimir Putin's Russia is. We can do this. And this is our chance to really make a difference. Um, So I just, I invite everybody to get involved. Um, Anybody who, uh, I mean, sorry, not anybody, anybody who wants to say something, Carolyn, Joe, <laughs> we're about to close that. We're, we're about to close out. Yeah. We're going to have listener calls now. No, sorry. <laughs> no, 
Um, although maybe one day we'll have something like that. Yeah. Democrats need to win. State legislatures this fall. There we go. Comment a question. There we go. So um, I don't know, Carolyn, Joe, if you want to piggyback off that for a second, and then I'll 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 take us home. (laughs) I'm just delighted to be here to guest host today. And I'm so high from my training experience in Pennsylvania on Saturday, just the energy in the room, all these candidates with all these great questions and just they're willing to do the hard work of running for office because running for office kind of sucks. It is hard. So the fact that all these folks are willing to arrive early on a Saturday morning, give their Saturdays to this endeavor and their Sundays, it was a multi-day training. Um, it's it's absolutely amazing, and I love seeing stuff like that because that's the kind of energy we need all across the country to be successful at every level of the ballot this November. Yeah, um, that's great. I, I, th- those people inspire me, and the and the staffers and the people who work for them inspire me. It's when and, you're in the fields. <laughs> yeah, and Carrie, um, what you just said just really got to me too because <laughs> I I kind of feel like. We can do this. We are better than this. This vision that the Republicans paint of America of as a hateful, hateful, divisive place. I, look, I know we have problems in this country. I know we have racism and homophobia and transphobia and anti-Semitism and attacks on our AAIPI brothers and sisters. But I still think we're better than this. And, and we can solve the climate issue we can, we can do this, but we have to work at it. it. It's it's hard work, and it's not easy. Nothing that's worth it ever is easy. And I, I give a shout out to everyone who is running for office, volunteering, donating. Oh, yeah. You're saving democracy. You're saving the planet. And yes, we are a bit demoralized right now. But if you think you're demoralized now, think what it would be like if the House and Senate go Republican in Washington and if Donald Trump wins again. Yeah, Our future, like that's a bleak future. I want a we hopeful can't. future. Yeah. I want a hopeful future. Thank you for joining us. We're so happy to have you all. Um, we appreciate your listenership. Please, if you haven't done so, um, you know, find our podcast, subscribe to it. That helps us uh, leave a, um, a glowing review. Even if you think we're awful, just say something nice. Lie for the first time in your lives. Lie for us. We appreciate that. Do it for trouble. Do it for trouble. Um, I also want to thank uh, Carolyn for joining me. I want to thank uh, Joe Sudbay, my good friend. Uh, political consultant and uh, and frequent uh, host on Sirius XM um, doing the state of the states uh, who where Carolyn sometimes shows up if you want more Carolyn so anyway thank you for joining us all have a great week we will see you here next week and uh, I think Marcos is back next week so um, have a good week everybody stay safe and uh, and you know Find some goodness out there. Find some goodness out there. Thank you for listening. If you're enjoying the show, give us a rating wherever you get your podcast. You can always talk to us at dailycoast.com or on Twitter at Daily Coast. See you next week.